Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM and this evening we're talking to the writer, uh, a very varied kind of writer, we're going to hear all kinds of, uh, about all kinds of work that she does, uh, it's fascinating, Tanya Shadrick, hello Tanya. Hello there Peter. So um, yeah, where are you speaking from today? I am speaking from the South Downs in Sussex, so a little town um, called Lewis, um, and it's only the second place I've ever lived in my whole almost 50 years. So I grew up on the North Devon Cornwall border on the coast, and then I moved here at 18, and I've been here ever since. <sighs> Wonderful. Yeah, I mm-hmm. can think I can hear North Devon in your in your voice. Oh yeah, never going away. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how are you today? I'm lovely, thank you. It's really good, really good to speak to you. Fantastic. Well, it's great to speak to you too. Um, first of all, yeah, you've got a book coming out uh, next year called The Cure for Sleep. And I was fascinated by the the, the kind of, the, yeah, the next line of the title, as it were, or the underline, which is A Late Waking Life. Uh, so I'd be, it'd be great if you could just uh, tell us what you mean by that. Okay, um, so it's a memoir, but uh, the reason we've got that subtitle is the whole theme of the book is um, lives lived and unlived, you know, that Jungian idea of uh, all adults place their unlived life onto their children. So for my first 33 years, because of childhood loss and fear, I was addicted to routine and order and safety. That was my only goal in life, or so I'd always told everybody. I actually always wanted to be a writer or an artist, but I lived a very, very orderly life. I had an office job that I loved, and I I just wanted to stay in it till retirement. Um, And then at 33, um, just a fortnight after becoming a new mother, I almost died in minutes, um, suddenly without any pain or warning. Um, And I had the whole near-death experience. Um, And I woke from the the emergency operation and an induced coma with this absolute desire to change my life radically. But it had happened to me at precisely the point where I'd become a new mother. And I'd been left as a very young child by my father, so I knew very well what it was like to grow up with a parent who had disappeared. 
So that's the kind of what I call the lathe and chisel of the book. It's uh, most of our stories of radical life change involve people leaving to go on a journey or some kind mm. of uh, a great quest. Um, that's the stories we're raised on, isn't it? You yeah. know, um, the big hikes or sailing off into the horizon. Um, and I decided to stay. And so my life's challenge in what I call my second life um, was how do you stay and still radically transform your life while being a mother, a respectable mother and long married wife in a very small town where everybody knows each other. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's quite an unusual story. Um, and so I'm going to be really interested to see how it connects with people next year. That's fascinating. I love the idea of leaving, but staying uh, mm. because we don't have the freedom necessarily to just pack up and go in the uh, in that as I walked out one midsummer morning kind of that way. book I love I love that book so much it's just a, just the title gets me going actually it makes me want to pack <laughs> I know. It back um, and actually and, um, yeah I'm go sorry. on no, go I was going to say and um, I've deliberately although I've had this um, I was the first person in my family to go to university and my education is 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 hugely important to me I've had this wonderful you know I'm a rural working class girl who's had a really deep um, and long education in English literature. So all those people, Lawrence, Laurie Lee, they're all running through my veins. But I made a very deliberate decision in the book to quote hardly anyone. Um, but what I've done instead is all the section epigraphs are taken from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass um, because he actually became, instead of baby manuals, um, what I did after the near death when I had to confront my, my small baby was I, I just got rid of all the baby manuals and I stocked my room with um, Arctic explorers and all these brave wild free men and I decided to create a playbook for them so Whitman just runs through as the section epigraphs like the body electric and um, I contain multitudes and and that's my swaggering kind of side and I, I brought that to these quite domestic um scenes so Great. <laughs> so I'm channeling channeling Whitman and Laurie Lee through the whole book <laughs> well Whitman is a is a wonderful a wonderful choice um I mean yeah I mean I think I wonder if if more people these days i say these days in a vague kind of way but are late wakers whether i mean there are i think there are i hear more and more stories and perhaps it's partly to do with the pandemic that people suddenly discovering at a later age that they want to do something and and it's that 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 something is usually something about the creative mind the creative spirit is that something uh, that that resonates with you Absolutely. You, you've pretty much named there what my entire practice is about. And I use that word practice without any kind of squeamishness because it is. When I decided to change my life, I realized that there might never be any external reward or success. But I decided to sign up for the practice of living in the way of the people that I'd admired. So I decided to live like a writer and live like an artist around my, all my duties and forget the outcomes mm -hmm. and just measure my life by how closely I was navigating towards those, those people I, I admired. And it actually turned out to be an incredibly um, effective way of doing it because in that sense, I couldn't lose. As long as I was acting that way, and performing it and doing the, the, the bits in my paper, you know, I was already changing the quality of my life. And that's a big thing I share with people. I, I often write in public as a performance artist. Mm -hmm. 
so funny for somebody who was so shy and hidden in an office for so many years but now I'm I'm completely open with everything I do and that's everything I stand for I try to in non-pandemic times I usually work in residency and I encourage as many people as possible to just begin Mm. and to, to not worry about outcome and and it's a pleasure over the last five years since I began my own late waking life so many people have gone on to book deals or they've signed up for degrees or they've got involved in community conservation work whatever in them because it's not always art or literature mm. but um whatever it is in them that that yearns for expression but doesn't come with the usual rewards and um safety nets that we're, we're taught to seek in life because let's face it, we all need to pay bills. You know, security is important, but I think pandemic has has woken mm. people up to. I mean, in a sense, it's been a great collective waking up. People are going, okay, I've got my home. I'm just managing to pay the bills. There's this yearning in me to build in something more. So yeah, that's what I hope the book will speak to you quite strongly. Although of course it's not a pandemic book. I was already writing it. Absolutely. I mean, and it, we'll hear an excerpt from it later on. The cure for sleep. It's a wonderful uh, title. Where does the title come from for you? Um, that's part of the story of the book, actually, um, and it's part of the lesson of the book. So that type, that that word, it just came to me one day um, before I'd even begun the piece of work that sort of turned me into a minor public figure. So um, the first thing I ever did that got me kind of known. I'd, I'd had one little local essay published when I was 42 about um, painting some railings in my small town. And I looked at that one essay and I thought, I've got to go for it now. I've got to go up the mountain by the most direct route. So the next thing I did was a, a residency in my town for two years where I wrote a mile in public on giant scrolls of paper by the country's oldest outdoor pool. But before I'd even done that, in my diaries... When I was acting like a writer, I'd written this word, the cure, uh, this phrase, the cure for sleep. And then at the end of five years of public work, when I thought I'd run out of ideas, my son hands it back to me. Mum, there was a title that you had on the board for a while. I really wanted to know what went with it. <laughs> and then I wrote the book. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and the book is, um, is about your journey from that near-death experience. Is that right? It's the story of my life before and after. Um, it's done, you know, I, I kind of go backwards before I go forwards. Um, in the minute, which I believe is my last minute of living, is how we go back in the narrative. And, and I say, um, you know, the moments which wake us, um, those are often sudden and shocking. But how we lose, you know, where we get lost in life, where we lose our will and way, how we fall asleep, that's our a harder story to understand we sort of have to go back mm. um, so that's why I take the reader back into just scenes from my earlier life and you see how a child who was born fiercely awake and fiercely clever sort of unaccountably so given the family I'd been born into you, you see me losing my will and way you see me deciding against risk against mm. opportunity constantly turning away from it at key points in childhood and young adulthood and then I come back to life um, after the coma and then the rest of the book is the forwards movement of, wow, knowing what true regret feels like, knowing the pain of that. It is soul anguish to believe your life is ending and to people talk about end of life regret. But my gosh, when you've experienced it, it is something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Um, just as a side note, I would say that the first thing I did 
to try and change my life and to be there's a recurring phrase in the book I wanted to escape my narrow self and circumstances I wanted to be more than a wife and a mother and a worker and the first thing I did when I had hardly any time around two small babies was I, I worked as a hospice scribe mm. um, and that instinct I had was that some people, not all, but some people at the hospice would be seized with the same wild regret as I had been. And they don't, not all people want to speak to a person of faith anymore. And it's not the kind of pain that counselling or opiates can touch. And so for a small group of people, I became for a short while the person they could talk to about regret. And it did calm them down. Small group of people, but it was life changing for me to do that. Um, gave me a real sense that storytelling in a very humble way was was deeply important between people. Absolutely. I'd like to to ask you a bit more about that and how that led on to Birds of Furl, which is mm. a wonderful project. But I really was struck by what you said a few minutes ago about encouraging people to begin uh, or begin again. I mean, and, and that reminds me of the poem by Brendan Kennelly, I think it's called begin i don't know if you know that poem do you i don't but i'll be learning it after this i'm sure oh yeah do <laughs> it's it's a, it's a wonderful poem i'll i'll, I'll um I'll, I'll i'll send it to you i'll send Thank you a link to it but it is i think it be, you know it begins with the words begin again it's a beautiful poem and oh, um yeah, yeah so very much in 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 the spirit of what you're doing um so tell us about about birds of furl tanya so birds of furl again like the book just predated pandemic but because of pandemic took on an entirely new dimension so um where were we we it was new year's day 2020 i'd come to a sort of what i felt was a natural end of this late waking writing life not that i'll ever stop writing but i couldn't see really that much was going to happen beyond that um, well, I had a book deal, but that's not the same. It, that was a great thing. I got the book deal in December 19, but that, that makes you very tied to a desk. And I'd had these five years of working in National Trust cottages beside pools near Lake Geneva, you know, meeting sometimes hundreds of people a day. Um, and I was feeling that sense of being cut off quite acutely. Anyway, I am... Um, I'd, in a difficult period of my life the year before, I'd been hiding in my car on the highest point of the Sussex Downs, Fell Beacon, um, just reading and sort of crying and trying to deal with a, a very difficult loss in my life. And then I got distracted by the, the rooks that are up there. There's a huge amount of rooks and jackdaws that collect up on top of the beacon. And I began to photograph them with my iPhone um, and play around with the images because they were low quality and they became quite dreamlike and strange. And um, on New Year's Day 2020, I thought, what can I do with those, those year old images? And I put them in a tiny little 50 pence notebook. And I said on Twitter, I'm going to start sending this book to anyone who wants it. There's only one copy, so when it gets lost, that's the end of the project. But let's see if we can keep it going for a year. Um, and the response was overwhelming. And the, the context of the book is I send it to someone, and the, the brief is uh, send me back a natural artifact and write me something on grief or hope as the thing with feathers. Um, so from the Emily Dickinson, this is my letter to the world, of course, and then Max Porter's book, Grief is a Thing. So hope or grief, either one. And the response was so incredible that at the beginning of this year, I wrote an essay about it for Little Toller's magazine, the online, clear, um, online magazine, The Clearing. 
and now really established writers are wanting to take part alongside people that have never been published before and so now it's a decade-long project and it's mm. just it's replaced that in-person storytelling and exchange that I love so much and the thing I love most is that you know one month Adam Nicholson um, prize-winning author of many books wrote about a, a raven he found dead on, lovely on a hillside in Korea. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, but then the next person was uh, someone who's only ever published, a retired woman who's only ever published a few words in her local church um, mm. newsletter. And now she's changed her Twitter bio to say, grandmother writer. Mm. Um, and then the next person was Esther Wolfson, whose book Corvus is about a bird she shared her life with, and, and that bird has now died after 30 years of living with the author. And, and she chose my project. She could have probably done that for money, but she chose to give that story to my project. Mm, fantastic. So, I mean, yeah, tell us about the title, Birds of Furl, and it'd be great if you could read something okay. from, from Birds of Furl. Thank you. So um, birds of feral simply because I'm up on feral beacon. Ah, feral beacon, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, it's no, it's no, and it just sounds right. And as a writer, I, I, I use quite simple language um, quite deliberately because of the people I come from. I'm always trying to find a way to write which uses all my learning and, and references from literature, but is in the language of where I come from. So I'm, I'm very ear-based as a writer. I just like the way birds of feral sound. Mm. <laughs> so I'm just going to read um, a, a few uh, paragraphs from the beginning is that all right from yeah, the, the essay yeah. so people get a sense of how it came about i once had a winter that was wordless a time of complicated grief the kind that can't be shared a loss that was private pained not really known to those around me the sort that had me hold my throat where sound should come but would not i decided to weather it simply to drive in school hours to the highest wildest point on my part of the sussex downs feral beacon and sit tight Cry, sleep, eat, write a little, read a lot, a book a day sometimes, all by those of strange or insistent imaginations, Nobel laureates, Emily Dickinson, Annie Dillard, and her urging that the gaps are the thing, the gaps are the spirit's one home, the altitudes and latitudes so dazzlingly spare and clean that the spirit can discover itself like a once blind, mind, blind man unbound, go up into the gaps. And then I did, and then I just want to write this bit. And so I went up there, an instinct that I might in my improvised hermitage meant my concentration and courage both. The first bird surprised me while I was resting my eyes, a jackdaw level with my driver's seat window, just inches from me, and held fast in the strong wind of that day as I have never seen a bird before or since, engraved in memory, black leather legs, rictal bristles on the beak, an aluminium eye, and every wing feather filigreed by the beacon's white light so I could feel the hooks and barbules holding each one together, a chain nail. And then uh, basically what happened it was, as I said before, you know, the birds surprised me out to myself. And to be clear, I don't believe nature is a cure. I've got another little section in the essay <laughs> where I say, you know, I haven't found that nature or love or even friendship cures us of particular losses. Um, but I do believe the world can surprise us out of that, that kind of bell jar that grief can create or loss can create, you know? So it's like, I, I talk about that the, the original loss is still there. It's a stubborn hollow space that nothing fills, but life expanded around it and color returned. Um, Lovely stuff, I, Tanya. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. 
no thank you that's that's yeah so that's kind of how it began it began in a very isolated private time but all my losses now have taught me that it's not easy or glib but that that moment where you you step out from your private suffering and you think what is the smallest simplest thing i could offer to other people and it all begins from there for me it's that the simplest exchange and that can be a smile or being a person on the park bench so another person feels able to sit on that bench with you it's really at that level for me um, mm. rather than big grand ideas it's at the level of being quiet invitation in the world lovely absolutely lovely um, so let's hear a piece of music that you've chosen this one is by Cath uh, Bloom who I didn't know anything about and now I do <laughs> <laughs> why did you choose Cath? Well, Kath Bloom, more people will know her than they realise. If they watched that, um, is it called Before Sunrise? It was yes. that indie film with um, uh, Ethan yeah, Hawke and Julie Delphi back in the 90s. They go into a, a record booth in a record shop and they hear a song by a beautiful, pure-voiced singer. Um, and this is her many years later. She's carried on making music across the decades. And what I love about her, because I'm approaching 50, is she revels in her age. She used to have this pure, beautiful voice. And now she lets it strain and stretch and crack. And in all of her songs, you can hear her age and her experience. She even lets the guitar falter, even though she's a, a superb musician. And so that interests me, letting ourselves age in our work. Um, so that's why I've chosen her. Anything can go at any given time. Anything that's yours, anything that's mine. We all walk the edge, we all walk the line. Anything can go at any time. We walk out to the cliff. Do you feel the sign? A melodic riff. Feel the sweet design. You can't walk on home. You can feel so fine. But anything can go at any time. Because the good times never last. But what I work for this is what I plan in the script of life I forget my lines but anything can go at any
so that was Kath Bloom, um, chosen by Tanya Shadrick, who we're talking to today. Uh, Tanya has a, write, a book out next year, The Cure for Sleep, published by Wheaton Field and Nicholson. So, um, Tanya, tell us about your residences, because you you write, as you said a little earlier, a great deal out doors in situations in locations with people tell it tell us how that works and the sort of places you've worked yeah um well obviously i haven't been able to do it um for the last couple of years which is why i've done these online projects and like birds of fur um the first one began um it was called wild patients a mile of writing and it just so happened that um the country's oldest outdoor pool is in my town Um, And it was at this point in my life when I'd had this one essay published at 42. And I remember thinking, blimey, I've got to to really push on now. And I remember thinking, the the essay had been about painting some really long railings in my street and surprising things had happened. A tree had been vandalised and I couldn't mend the tree, but I decided to spend a year painting the railings on the field, you know, that bordered the field it was in. It was some kind of sense of equal and opposite reaction, you know, quite intuitive. Mm. And I did it and it really changed me in relation to people in the town because it was the first time I had stepped out from my sort of circles of belonging. I was this odd woman painting in the street and and people that would never normally have seen me or talked to me began to, you know, tease me and, and take an interest in what I was doing. And I remember thinking... What if I did that with writing? What if I changed this? What if I just carried on writing my private diaries in public and changed the scale so that people couldn't help but be fascinated in what I was doing? I think at the very least I would enjoy it and people would be interested locally. That was my the height of my ambitions. It was just to make something interesting happen to my life in school hours, which, you know, as most uh, caregivers will know are not that long actually by the time you get back from a school run it's like 10 o'clock and then you're turning tail to go go back again at two so it was just down the road didn't cost any money I had already through ill health had to give up my job for a while so um I was at a bit of a loose end and and that's what I did and it the first few weeks were just painful because I was just doing this very strange thing and and thinking, Christ, I've got to do this now all summer, even if nobody's interested. But then a photographer came and took some photos of me doing it and it just took off. You know, I was like in a centrefold in a magazine, not in in that way, but, you know, I was featured in this trendy 30-something magazine, this 40-year-old woman, you know, I was on radio, TV. It It was just magical. And so it just, the idea of what I was doing, because these rolls of paper were 150 foot long, and it mm. ended up being 100,000 words of my normal size handwriting. <laughs> and, um, and, and then that just, of course, made it easy to go other places. So I, I was given this really prestigious residency in Switzerland. So I went for, they offered me three fully funded months, but um, my husband could only free me up for five weeks. But that's still massive when you're a parent of young children. Mm. Who, who barely leaves home so I went there then I worked in a national trust listed national trust cottage on a, on a cliff top in North Devon I'm like a little character in a fairy tale you know like a little troll under a bridge and, and worked in a nature reserve and wherever I went it was the same magic people just got me I had my headscarf on and a little paint stained apron I just looked like something a little bit old-fashioned from the fairy tales we read when we're young and without any words or, or posters, people just kind of get what I'm there for and they just start talking to me. It's, it's just 
brilliant. <laughs> and is that what you mean by slow writing? Because you've talked about slow writing. Um, and slow art, yeah. Slow art, um, yeah. I, I did a, a wonder, there's a wonderful radio show still available on BBC iPlayer called Slow Art Pursuit of Beauty. And it features a number of artists, um, like Jem Finer's th- uh, Music for a Thousand Years, James Terrell's uh, Roden Crater. He's building a big volcano out in the desert in America somewhere. And my mentor is the sculptor David Nash. Um, and he obviously has the, the famous uh, 40-year-old ash dome. He planted a ring of ash trees in a secret location in, ni- in the 1970s, mm. around the year I was born. And they've been growing ever since. He's been tending them slowly into this dome shape. It's the BBC Two ident quite often between programs so lots of people will have seen it even if they don't know about it consciously um and he and i were interviewed alongside each other um because you know the the whole program was about this concept of making something for none of the usual incentives for art you know he can't david nash can't sell the ash dome uh james terrell can't Jem Finer can't turn the music into, you know, but we're doing it for the process to to feel something stretched out and to, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a way of feeling free actually. When you start doing something that takes a really long time and and it's not for money and it's not for sale, uh, really surprising things happen to a life in in doing that. Yes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, absolutely, and. Uh... What's happened to the mile of writing? I just, I just wanted to know. <laughs> it is about as we speak. It's about two feet away from me, rolled up in plastic bags in my bedroom <laughs> cupboard. Not quite true. One of them is above the cupboard in a beautiful box. I had a specialist box maker who works for all the, all the you know big archives in the country, um, but it costs hundreds of pounds, and uh, and I'm not quite ready to spend the the thousand or so that it will take to put each of the five because there's five scrolls each with 20,000 words on. So five 150-foot scrolls covered in tiny handwriting. But one has got this superb like display case, the way Japanese scrolls in museums uh, are held. Um, but the rest are in plastic bags. <laughs> well, I'm glad they're somewhere. Uh, you were go- uh, yeah, you're going to read a poem for us, so it'd be lovely to hear that. Okay. Um, and I will preface it by saying I'm not a poet. And I'm, this is the only poem I've ever written. I wrote it sh- straight into Twitter one day. And it had this incredible response, went all around the world. So I kind of typed it up and, and posted it. And then it, it, it kind of got um, critiqued in print by somebody, um, a critic, saying it was dreadful, um, which was quite odd given I, I'm not a poet and hadn't made any great claims for it. I'd never had it published anywhere beyond my own Twitter. To feed. But anyway, I'm actually quite proud of it because I'm not a poet. I did it um, after the example of Wendell Berry, who is a fine poet, like Mary Oliver, very popular with people. Um, he's got this beautiful poem, which I would say to all your listeners, if you don't know it, look up a poem called How to Be a Poet to Remind Myself by Wendell Berry. And he kind of gives himself some simple instructions for living. So mine is after Wendell Berry. And it was me thinking about I have, I have chronic pain, so I often can't roam around outdoors, but I like to, when I can, I like to play at being a sort of classic male nature writer. So this is about <laughs> that. <laughs> um, so I don't actually live like this most of the time, but it's, and it's also a bit about things that are not to do with nature writing, of course. So um, exercises for a nature writer. Rise like a farmer at five and sit in kitchen silence, shepherd thoughts. Dress for the weather, taking pen, paper, pocket knife, stay out all day. 
Do not forget to eat with your whole concentration on eating. Chew as cows do. Ruminate. Let everything be well digested. Ask, are my ears good? The tendons and intentions that move my pen. Work loose what is stuck in you through service to whatever crosses your path. Inspect the edgelands daily. Make holes in every fence for life to slip through. <laughs> and that's it. That's my only poem. <laughs> Great stuff. I really, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, well, I, we don't care what one one poetry critic says. Of, we don't care about stuff like that. <laughs> um, it's interesting that Rob Cowan, who um, who. Uh, was on Love the Words the other day, and uh, you, you mentioned you listened to. He, he, he didn't write poetry before this current book, actually, The Heeding, and there are about 50 of them in that. So, you know, you never know, Tanya. No, I really I admire it too much to, to try it, and I have Rob's beautiful book ahead of me. I, I have it here, and I'm, I'm going to be reading it as soon as my book proof goes off for the last time next week. So, uh, yeah, and I loved his conversation with you. And he was a, he's a lovely person. Um, in that article, which, which attacked my my Twitter poem. Um, he, Robert McFarlane, Adam Nicholson, some other really fine writers were also yeah. taken to task, really out of context. It was quite personal attack. And, and Rob sent me lovely messages, um, private messages of support, as did lots of other established writers saying, mm. you know, um, this must be a surprise for you because this is quite early on in your writing life. But we all get this and it, and it never goes away. The vulnerability of of putting things out in public is is huge and we just have to push through that and go for it and you have to focus on all the people that you connect with that you would never have met before so real Jen and I hope to meet him in in like the real world uh, one season soon Tanya um tell us about Selkie Press and about Wild Woman Swimming <laughs> so um Selkie Press is, it sounds very grand to say it's my publishing house, but it is. Um, it, there's no house, it's just where I live. Um, but only, I think it was about a month into my mile of writing that I published my first ever shy blog post. I, I think I had less than 100 followers on Twitter. Um, but I thought, well, I'll do a blog post. And I wrote about um, my body back when I lived by the sea as a child, how it was really the last time down in those waves in Cornwall where I felt really... Um, like I was fully inhabiting my body um, and after that social pressures crowded in and I became sort of a, a mind in a jar like so many women I know describe anyway I got a message from somebody um, saying hey this is incredible I'm from the West Country too and in short um, I was also doing an anthology alongside my mile of writing I was asking other people I thought it was just going to be a little pamphlet at the time this woman had some writing about water that she wanted to share with me but she had been diagnosed with brain tumor um, and only five years earlier she'd had breast cancer and after that at 50 she began swimming outdoors and those five years of life my gosh in terms I mean she wasn't a late waking life she was a paramedic she'd been in um, active service in Iraq she was a real life liver but had always wanted to be a writer and that was the one thing she had not done she'd only written these blog posts She'd never edited them. They weren't literary writing. They were brilliant. But she hadn't gone through that slow private process of, of polishing them. And so she said, you know, it's too late for me. Um, but would you help me? Would you just publish a small selection of them in your anthology? Mm. Um, I went down to meet her. Um, and it was only a few weeks before she died. It's our only meeting. And I, I realized coming away from that meeting that 
her writing deserves much more than just I put her in the anthology and dedicated the anthology to her but I thought no she she needs to be a book of her own um, I tried I didn't have many connections back then I do now I tried didn't get any interest people were more interested in me like have you got a book you want to write so I thought I'm just gonna have to do this myself and it's that fairy tale motif like the little red hen you know when she's like finds a grain of wheat I thought I'm just gonna have to do this myself and so I did and I got an hour of mentoring from someone and, and made a book and it ended up on it's called wild woman swimming a journal of west country waters by lynn roper an amazing woman and um the year after it was published it was on the wainwright nature prize long list aside, alongside robert mcfarlane max porter you know household names mm-hmm. um and it's still selling now i've already you know in the, in the two years it's been out i've sent two thousand pounds to our hospice um from it and you know this is a book without it's not you know you can order it from a bookshop but it's not on bookshop shelves across the country i mean yeah it keeps selling and then last month one month before what would have been her 60th birthday she was included in a wonderful big new anthology by unbounders it's called women on nature Mm. and it's got over a hundred women writers past and present on nature in it including dorothy wordsworth virginia wolf george Eliot, you know the really big names of literature and lynn roper is in it and i was able to send it to her elderly parents who survived her for her 60th birthday and you know oh. that's and again Wonderful i story. didn't didn't do it for cost or profit and and to be clear you know your listeners must be thinking she must be a very privileged person to be able to do all these things not for money and and I do like to sort of declare my sort of checkbook exactly but I, I, I'm quite open about this I had nothing you know I, I left home at 16 um, no family money I just worked really hard because I was terrified I had no safety net in life and I spent very little so I just compulsively saved money for years I don't have any fancy possessions my husband's the same he's a a miner's son so we we just spent our first you know 25 years together saving money Mm. and then we got to this tipping point where it's like what are we saving this for you know how much safety is safety so in that sense i am in a quite privileged position of now i have got money in the bank um Mm. but i would say that there's a lot of talk about privilege at the minute and people you know but what i say to people is if you have got some degree of choice in your life then that is privilege and really think about how to use it be fully alert to what privilege you have if you have a choice over what you do with your time or your money try and find ways to do it for the benefit of others as well as yourself and, and that's how i proceed while i've got the money and you know, i'm being paid, paid very well for the book um so that allows me to give away my time on other things and that's that's how i live now well we're gonna um we're gonna hear a little extract from the cure for sleep to uh, in a few minutes time because sadly mm-hmm. we have to to finish soon tanya but but um just briefly i really loved the phrase it's on your website i think as that you consider a, one of the main parts of your work calling forth stories from other people uh-huh. and i love that phrase to call forth stories yeah could you talk about that a bit um yeah it's 
it's actually a misquotation I found out recently and I was very upset as I always thought there was this famous quote from Thoreau who like Whitman is another of my great great writers I love the way he he lived by Walden Pond for a couple of years and and the misquotation is most men live lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song inside them um, it's a quote many people know and it's attributed to Thoreau but that lovely bit at the end about the song inside is actually not in his writing <laughs> anyway it still captures my imagination this idea of the song inside us and that's certainly what it felt like when i was sitting with hospice people you'd have these these working class men who'd never really voiced any of their feelings or memories and then suddenly like sometimes uh, there was this one man in particular i asked him a very specific question about his pay packet and it was like listening to a bird sing he suddenly became lyrical and remembering his first ever foreign holiday in the 60s when he'd changed his job and he was able to take his family camping by a lake in Italy and, and a storm came up and all the men were banging in the tent pegs at night. And that's what I mean about calling forth from one another. It's finding light and appropriate ways to show genuine interest in others and giving them that opportunity, whether it's in writing or marks made on paper or just stories told on a park bench. It's, it's that, yeah, it's, it's calling forth. It's being a quiet invitation and a safe person so that others can give voice to things that they've never been given an opportunity to, to, to give voice to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, uh, yeah, for, for, for sort of elaborating on the calling forth of stories. Mm. Um, yeah, so unfortunately we've got to wind up. So let's hear, uh, if you will, an extract from The Cure for Sleep, which is out next year. You can tell us when and how we can pre-order it as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm actually going to read the very first page of the book. And I've written the whole book um, in the style of fable and fairy tale. And so in that sense, it is also designed to be read aloud as, as well as held in the hand. So this is the very beginning of the book and it's called The Light. The light. Did I see it? What people want to know when they learn about my sudden near death at 33. Yes, I saw a light, I say. It changed me, but not in ways that were quick or comfortable. I practiced no faith before it and none since. And I can't know if what I glimpsed was the realm of God or physics or just an effect of my body draining fast of blood and oxygen only that it left me unable on the turn to sleepwalk through my days as I'd been doing. I didn't rise from the hospital bed certain of purpose. I hadn't been washed clean of my past. I wasn't made saintly or simply glad to be alive. I was only more awake. A woman like stripped wire, pulsing with unstable energy and seized by a need to escape my narrow self and circumstances, whatever the cost. But as a new mother in a small town, long married to a loving man, there was more than myself at stake. And that's how the book begins. <laughs> and that's from The Cure for Sleep. So, Tanya, w w where can we get hold of this book and when? It's already available for pre-order online from all the, the normal places. So it's A Cure for Sleep, A Late Waking Life. Um, it's available, um, it's published on the 20th of January, 2022. But already um, in the way that I work, I'm already using the uh, journey to publication to encourage other people to see their words in print for the first time. So if your listeners went to thecureforsleep.com, they can become subscribers. And each month I'm sharing an advanced extra 
extract from the book to a different theme and then people are able to share a short true tale of a few hundred words or less in return and then they get added to the book's website. So I've got this lovely idea of, um, of it kind of the book being a meadow so it's not just my book that I'm asking people to buy I'm also saying tell me your stories let's join them all together and people are and it's wonderful people are seeing their words in print for the first time. Great stuff. Well, Tanya, thanks so much for talking to us today. It's been really, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Pleasure. And, uh, Thank you. Uh, you. You chose a final piece of music by Bob Dylan, so perhaps you could just uh, <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> well, we touched on the very beginning of the interview about this, this, and uh, throughout the interview on this idea that I'm, I'm clearly a woman in my almost fifties, um, but I've always had this quite swaggery male side to me, um, or what we think of as male. So, you know, Whitman, Thoreau, all these people, Jack Kerouac, and um, and Bob Dylan is that for me in music. Um, I just love the swagger of him and how long and varied his career has been, and how he tours and travels and meets people, and so. Um, um, after I've had long hours sitting at my desk, I have this little um, ritual where I, I put on, I've got a playlist about trains and journeys. Um, and obviously he writes about that a lot. And I go for a drive down the quiet Sussex lanes with my windows open, singing my head off, often out of tune. And uh, this is one of the ones I love the most for that. It's just full of energy and swagger. I love it. <laughs> Great. Thanks ever so much, Tanya. And hopefully we'll be in touch again. And if you're ever passing by Yorkshire and Leeds, do drop in to Chapel FM and see us. I would love that. And you're, you're very welcome here as well on the Sussex Downs in Wolf and Revillius country, Peter. Thank you, Tanya. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's that's hopefully in the can <laughs> you never quite know i hope so because i really enjoyed that thank you so much they were great questions as well and before i go um just uh, on a personal note um because well, you know i i'm not a broadcaster but if i had to pick actually i i love radio it's my favorite thing do you you will have heard of studs turkle and, of course well, well yeah, studs turkle yeah oh, i can tell you about yeah yeah <laughs> Go, okay. Well, I'll tell you no, very briefly. I tell mean, me. uh, no, Tony Macaluso, who's my co-director, co-director of Chapel FM Arts Centre, is the, basically the curator of the Studs Ar uh, Archive. No, he is. Yeah, he's, he's a kind of world <laughs> expert. Oh. he knew he's from Chicago, and he yeah. That's oh a, God, I love. Do you know I am so due a ready train journey. I feel so. I love the Downs, but I'm so so. I would gladly take a train journey just for an hour of your gentleman's got you and he his company. Yeah, yeah. Just talk radio to me, yeah. but um, that's just thrilled me. Um, but um, after his example, the American um, author. Uh, Paul Austin, um, Paul Austin, yes. this really amazing Three, thing. Yeah, it's American True, True Tales of American, of American yeah. Life. And that just blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, that book is incredible that came out of it. And I mm. wish I'd heard the actual radio stories. But, oh, if you guys ever want to do, like, right. your version of that in your region well, and you want someone like me as part of calling forth and, and getting people to do the stories. Um, well, that would be fantastic. But I'll tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> this is before I knew Tony. But um, we uh, occasionally do all-night readings. And about five years ago, we did an all-night reading of that very book. 
No. We started at 10 o'clock at night and we went through till 10 o'clock in the morning. It was just <gasps> an amazing thing. It's probably still online, so if you want to hear, I'll oh, send you a link. Oh, if you find the link, send oh, me a link. It's, it that... was just the most amazing thing. And we, there were about I know 20... some of those stories off by heart, like the chicken that she watches in the... what She watches the chicken walking along the traffic jam and it turns up a, a porch and knocks on the door. <laughs> it's just it's wonderful, isn't it? And, that, and we got... I mean, there were about 20 of us and, you know, people came in. It was a lovely thing, actually. People came in and out during the night and some people stayed an hour some people slept a bit some oh. people and we just kept it going the whole way through and i read that last story which you know is about radio and and oh, it's about the, the radio speaking to the to the lonely and oh, bloody oh. Hell. I, I could hardly get, hardly get to the end yes. of it yeah. i hadn't slept at all by 10 o'clock reading the final few sentences i, I nearly had a very uh, embarrassing public moment but it was <laughs> it was great no, it's funny you should mention it because oh no, well look at that that's just you well you've made my week that's this is and do you know there that's what i'm talking about that's us calling for stuff from each other I and mean, what were the odds of of us having those things in common that's just thrilling <laughs> well Love the commas, love the apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks, love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita, no, no, Lita, Piramarti, no, no, Lita, Perushi. So thank you so much to Tanya Shadrick for that interview for Love the Words. As you heard, I decided to keep the last part of the conversation we had after I uh, officially finished the recording. We're now going to hear uh, a song by Joni Mitchell. I've been uh, playing some songs that for me exemplify fantastic lyric writing. And uh, Blue, the album by Joni Mitchell, is 50 years old this week. This isn't from uh, Blue, it's from my favourite Joni Mitchell album, Hijira. I think, uh, obviously, as a guitar player, singer, as a melodist, she's extraordinary. But as a lyricist, I think she is surpassingly good. So this is Song for Sharon from Hijira by Joni Mitchell.
to see the tears and the kisses and the pretty lady in the white lace wedding gown. And walking home on the railroad tracks or swinging on the playground swing. Love stimulated my illusions more than anything. And when I went skating after You know it was white lace I was chasing Chasing dreams Mama's nylons underneath my cowgirl jeans You showed me first to get the kisses And then you get the tears But the ceremony of the bells and lace Still veils this reckless fool here Have you 